Welcome to the Books and Travel podcast. I'm Jo Francis-Penn, thriller and dark fantasy author, bringing you escape and inspiration about unusual and fascinating places, as well as the deeper side of books and travel. You can find the episode show notes at booksandtravel.page, and if you enjoy thrillers set in international locations, download one of my ebooks for free at jfpen.com forward slash free. Hello, travellers. I'm Jo Francis Penn, and in today's interview, I'm talking to Rachel Jones about Djibouti in the Horn of Africa, which is over to the east side if you're looking at a map. But even if you're not interested in travelling there, you'll find today's interview fascinating because we end up talking about the concept of home and travel when you live somewhere that is not your birthplace. So I learned a lot in this episode because I didn't know anything about Djibouti and it is a meeting place of cultures with French, Somali and Yemenese influences. It's shaped by its geographical position between the desert and the sea on the borders of Ethiopia, Somalia and Eritrea, as well as the Gulf of Aden and the Red Sea. So Rachel explains how she came to love the country, some tips for travelling to Djibouti and what you can see and eat there because it's got this French colonial influence, as well as thoughts on being an expatriate and raising third culture kids or TCKs, which is the first time I've actually heard the term. Now, I went to primary school in Malawi in Central Africa, so I know a little about living very happily um, as a Westerner in Africa. And apparently I am a third culture kid uh, because I grew up in that more of a multicultural atmosphere. And this, this was like a penny dropping for me because I have always felt that I should, in inverted commas, know what home is. And yet I never, I've never felt that I found it. I always, but and yet I, I almost don't need to find it because I don't feel any sense of not having a home. But people tell me I should know what home is, which is why I ask about it. Um, so this is really fascinating to me. I love talking to Rachel and uh, I hope you enjoy the conversation today and just a fascinating place that I, I was so thrilled when Rachel emailed me about it because I would just never think to talk about Djibouti and it was just a fantastic chat. So enjoy the interview. Rachel Pye-Jones is the author of Welcome to Djibouti, Arrive, Survive and Thrive in the Hottest Country on Earth, as well as Stronger Than Death, The Djibouti-licious Cookbook and Finding Home. She's also a freelance writer, blogger and runner. Welcome to the show, Rachel. Thanks. It's great to be here. Oh, it's so good to have you on the show and just such an unexpected place. So first of all, many people might not know anything about Djibouti. So tell us, where is it in the world and also how you came to be living there? So Djibouti is in the Horn of Africa. It is bordered by Somalia, Ethiopia, Eritrea, and and it opens up on right where the Red Sea meets across the water from Yemen. So it's kind of a very small country in a hot spot in the world, but it's peaceful, it's stable. Um, it's got about a million people, so it's very small. And it's a kind of by accident, and then we stayed on purpose. Um, because in 2003, my husband took a job teaching at a university in northern Somalia, which is Somaliland, kind of a, a breakaway republic, which also was peaceful. Um, 
2003, we left our home state of Minnesota, moved to the Horn of Africa. But then after about a year, the stability sort of crumbled and things got a little violent. And so we were forced to flee. Um, we grabbed, at that time, we had two-year-old twins. We grabbed the kids, grabbed a suitcase and just ran to the airport. Um, and then because Djibouti borders Somaliland and it's also Somali population, uh, we had some connections there. So my husband was invited to come teach there at a university. So in 2004, we moved to Djibouti and then we've just kept on staying. <laughs> Which is so interesting because when people hear the word flee and violence, <laughs> they're like, okay, so you actually stayed in the area, which is interesting. So I guess what keeps you there? What 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 is it that's so interesting and amazing about the place? Yeah, so part of it, a lot of it is our work. I mean, my husband was a professor at the university there for years, and then he finished his PhD in education. And then as the country has developed, it's it's a young country, and so it's really growing quickly. And English language was identified as one of the urgent things that they wanted to grow in. And so that was my husband's specialty. And so we were asked to start an English language school a few years ago. So preschool through 12th grade. Now he transitioned out of being a professor, and now we run our own school. And so that's really an exciting opportunity to be part of this country that it's one year older than me. And so it's, we're kind of growing together. Um, and we get to participate in the growth of this country with English language and with the school. Um, and so that work is really meaningful. And then Djibouti itself, like, yes, there was violence, you know, way back 17 or 16 years ago. Um, but Djibouti is very peaceful and stable. And it's, uh, it's been a great place to raise a family and to live. Um, and so, yeah, the work and the community that we've built there has just really helped us to stay with meaning and joy. Mm. So you mentioned there the country is one year older than you. So what what is the history? I guess it's a colonial history. Mm -hmm. Yeah, 1977, they got independence from France. And so they're a French, former French colony, one of the youngest countries on the continent of Africa. Um, and... Yeah, 1977, independence. Um, it's a population majority Somali, and then there's also Afar, which are a significant portion, and then a lot of Arabs from Yemen who have historically been there, so generations. Uh, so it's a really kind of a mix of places. You have the French culture mixed on top of all those. Um, and so it's a lot of diversity, which makes it a pretty open, uh, welcoming kind of place. Mm. So um, what is there in terms of, in my mind, a former French colony may well have uh, European style architecture, but then you've obviously also mentioned Arabic culture. So what does the place look like? Is that the kind of vibe? I've heard it compared to more Arab than European style. Um, it's kind of a sea town. So it's right on the ocean, the capital city anyway, and vast majority of the population is in the capital. And so you have uh, a lot of ships and then there's kind of a salty feel in the air and the buildings have kind of a whitewashed look to them. Um, and then it also, so there's the sea on the one side and then on the backside, I guess, of the capital, you could say, is the desert. And so you have a lot of dust and um, camel trains coming and going with nomads from the desert. And so it's uh, a real conflux of interesting cultures with the fishing and the nomadic populations kind of all meeting together in this little town on the on the coast. 
<laughs> it sounds quite romantic in a way. Uh, so, you know, so has it got like a big port, or is it more um, relaxed? I guess than 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 industrial. Yeah, the major economic driver is the port. They don't really produce anything. The land is really harsh, um, but the port—it's such a significant location, strategic location, right at the bottom of the Red Sea, and then going around the Horn of Africa down towards Kenya or South Africa or over to India. So for ships. It's a really strategic place to refuel or to, you know, Ethiopia is landlocked and they're a massive country. And so almost everything that Ethiopia gets in or ships out comes through the port of Djibouti. And so that's a really significant part of the economic, yeah. Wow. So uh, what's, what's the capital city called and what are some of the things that people might do if they visit? It is called Djibouti. So it's Djibouti, Djibouti. <laughs> Brilliant. Like New York, New York. <laughs> yeah, it's just really fun to say. <laughs> um, and so the mostly what tourists do is leave the city, actually. Um, there's not a lot of, well, there aren't any museums or things like that in town. But outside of the city is just really unusual and unique kind of landscape and geography. And so people like us who live there, we go to the beach a lot. It's pretty close within an hour, hour and a half to really stunning beaches of, um, for snorkeling and for scuba diving. And so that's a big draw for tourists. Um, especially in the month of like late November, early December through midwinter, uh, whale sharks come through the Gulf of Tajura. And so, I mean, it's a guarantee that if you go diving or even snorkeling, you'll see whale sharks. Um, so that's a big draw. And that's what we do every year at Christmas. That's like what my kids do on Christmas is go <laughs> swimming with whale sharks. <laughs> oh, wow. Um, yeah. And then other places outside the city, there's the lowest point in Africa is in Djibouti. It's Laka Sal, which means the salt lake. And so it's a, a salt lake that is actually more densely salinated than the Dead Sea. And uh, it's just this in- incredibly stark landscape nothing grows because of all the salt and the heat and the rocks but the the salt lake itself is the edge of it is white from all the salt kind of crusted on the edge and then the water is this kind of green blue and then surrounding the area is these black volcanic hills that are just black and then (laughs) over the top of them you can see the gulf which is this brilliant blue and so you have this really unique setting of the the salt and the the colors are so incredible and the um the the salt crust it kind of makes these or the lake itself makes these salt balls that can be pea-sized up to maybe plum-sized balls of salt that are just naturally formed circles I and mean, it's just incredible it feels like a different world Wow, to have the ocean on one side and the desert on the other, that's uh that's pretty special. Is that sort of within, you know, you could drive from one to the other in in, in not that long? Oh, easily, yeah. Yeah. It's a, a very small country, so <laughs> Yeah. It, and when you say a small country, give if people are say in the USA, what would they compare the size of the country to in the US? I think it's the land square mileage is around the size of Massachusetts. Right. Okay. And less than a million people. Yeah, so it's tiny. <laughs> yeah. Wow, that's so interesting. So what about the um the religious side because often, you know, in traveling some really interesting architecture or the culture is shaped by by religion. So is it Islamic because of the Arab influence? 
Yeah, uh, I think 95% Muslim is the statistic that I've heard. And most of the non-Muslims are foreigners, Ethiopian or French or other foreigners. Um, so with Somali, Afar, and Arab, definitely majority Muslim. So you do see a lot of mosques. And there's been a lot of recent building of just these beautiful buildings, new mosques. Um, so you see minarets everywhere. You can hear the call to prayer uh, that five times a day is the call to prayer. So that kind of structures the day. And um, so both by what you see and also by the structure of life is definitely formed by Islam. So our weekend day is Friday and Saturday instead of Saturday and Sunday, because Friday is the day of worship for Muslims. Um, and we follow the holidays. So we have Eid, which is in a couple, two Eids a year, our high Islamic holy days. Um, but one of one thing that I really appreciate and I think has enabled us to live so long here is that uh, there's this one place which kind of captures for me what it looks like to live there with in terms of religion. Uh, right near the port, along the corniche there, you can walk along the port and you look away from the port and you can see this several mosques that are just, you know, piercing the sky with their minarets and their really beautiful buildings. And you can also see the rooftop of this Ethiopian Orthodox church. And you can see the um, cross of the French Protestant church. And you can also see the very tip top of the cathedral, the Catholic church. And so all these religions are able to coexist peacefully. And um, Islam is the majority religion, but it's, it's a welcoming open place where we are free to follow and, and people are free to follow what they choose to. And so I think that's really beautiful and um, contributes to the peacefulness of the country and the welcoming nature of it. Mm, no, that's fantastic. And then obviously part of culture is always the food and you've got this fantastically named Djibouti-licious <laughs> cookbook, which I just love. It's just the best title. So um, what are some of the things that people might eat there? So one of our favorite things to go out to eat is called mukbasa. And it's this Yemeni fish dish that uh, you go to these little tiny restaurants or you might sit on a long wooden bench and um, you go to the back and you can choose out your fish. It could be grouper or red snapper or whatever was the fresh catch of the day. So you pick it out and then they'll cut it in half and just basically throw it on top of charcoal with some paprika and some spices. And then they'll bring it to your table and you... It's just the whole fish open up there. You squirt some lime juice on the top and then you eat it with your fingers and it's just delicious. It comes with these big flatbreads and uh, it also comes with mashed up bananas with fried bread kind of mashed together. So you get the sweet and the salty with chocolate drizzle on top. I mean, it's just a feast. It's so good. Oh, that sounds yum. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then one of our family, like a, a, basic staple that our family just loves so much about Djibouti are baguettes, which are definitely from the French influence. But it's not just that you get this baguette, which is delicious. But when we first moved there, I would hear every day, several times a day, this kind of honking, squawking sound. And I always thought it was a strange bird that I couldn't see. And then finally, we realized it was actually what's called the bread man. And he, he honks a bicycle horn. And he walks up and down. I mean, there's several of these guys. They walk up and down the neighborhoods, every neighborhood, several times a day, pushing a wooden cart, just heaping full of fresh baguettes. And they cost, at least compared to U.S. dollars, they cost about 13 cents for a baguette. 
And uh, so the, my kids would just run out and grab one and they just melt in your mouth. So that's one of our favorite things. You know, you can get those every day. Mm. So it sounds like there's a lot of uh, fresh, fresh food, fresh seafood, that type of thing. Yeah. If it's not seafood, the rest of the fresh stuff comes in by train or by plane because nothing really grows locally. But we get stuff from Ethiopia or from Kenya pretty easily. Mm. And what about um, alcohol? Is it is it a dry country? It is not, which is interesting because of the majority Muslims, you would kind of expect that, but also because of the French influence. Uh, so it's it's not dry. There are a few halal stores. So halal means um, that they don't have pork or alcohol products or Islamically clean. It's mm. a Islamically clean store. But there are other ones that will sell those things. And so you just, if you want that, you have to know where to go. Mm. So do they bring in like French wine or... <laughs> Oh, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, no, that sounds good. So, I mean, those are some of the incredible things. And I mean, sort of snorkeling with whale sharks on Christmas Day, and it just sounds wonderful. But of course, uh, Africa has challenges. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So what are some of the challenges? I mean, you're, I I see a picture of you, you're fair skinned, and you're in the hottest country on earth. (laughs) So, um, I mean, how how do, what do people need to do in order to be safe and well? Well, first, I just want to say I really appreciate you asking about those positive things. I think a lot of times the assumption is it must be so hard to live in Africa or it must be so scary or, you know. And so I'm just I really am thankful that you asked about the good and the beautiful as a first assumption. Um, But, yeah, I mean, it, it is a foreign place and I'm a foreigner there and we stick out both by appearance and also we're from a Christian background. And so by religion by language, you know, I've had to learn French and Somali. Um, so yeah, there are definite challenges. And and what's interesting to me as I think about this is that the challenges have changed over the years. So in the beginning, it was just a lot of loneliness and total overwhelm because things were so different from my suburban Minnesota upbringing. I loved the uh, opportunity to learn and explore, but it also got easily overwhelming. So I was often just exhausted from language study or humiliated by making some ridiculous (laughs) cultural faux pas. Um, So yeah, in the beginning, it was kind of that was the challenge. And always overriding everything is the heat. It is a very hot country. So in the summer, temperatures can get up to 120, which would be, I think, about 47. Mm. I'm not exactly sure with Celsius, but very hot, up to 50. It can be, you know, past 50 even. Um, So that's always a factor, but we've learned to adjust to that. And I I feel like now, as we've been there so long, um, I just have learned when you're, when you're a foreigner in a different country, you learn sort of which boundaries you're comfortable crossing and which ones you're not. In the beginning, you don't even know what those boundaries are. Um, But then as you've been there a long time, you just kind of learn how to be yourself in this place. Like I will never be local. You know, I think there can be an idealism about that when you move abroad. I'm going to just really fit in and become indiscernible from a local person. Well, that's never going to happen. And so I've learned to just own that and live in that space. And which comes with a lot of having to learn myself Um, and then needing to be both humble and courageous at the same time. Uh, And so for an example of what kind of boundary I've learned to be comfortable pushing up against or even crossing over sometimes comes with running. 
um, you mentioned I'm a runner. I just love it. It helps me. It just helps me clear my mind. Mm. Um, and I love to experience a place by running through a new city or a new country and, and just seeing what I can smell or see or hear on the run. And so that's been really important to me. But in the beginning, I didn't think that it, that women could run in Djibouti. There aren't very many who do. There certainly aren't very many local women who do. And, and I was kind of taking my cues from the local population, more from the foreigners, just so I could learn what was appropriate locally. So, you know, as I just spent a couple of years sort of watching and asking questions, which are two keys for people moving to a new place are just to watch and then to ask questions. Um, and I saw that, okay, I think that it would be okay. It would be a little strange for a white woman to run, but I think it would be safe and okay. You know, and so I just slowly started doing it. I learned which sections of town I could do it in. I learned what to wear instead of bringing my American assumptions to all of that. Um, I just let the local realities influence my decisions. And then now I've done it for so long, I feel pretty comfortable doing it. And, um, and then along with that, like I've learned to, I've had the privilege of participating with local women who do run. So in 2008, um, I, I and another woman started the only all girls running club in Djibouti. Cool. (laughs) And yeah. And so we just, it was, our goal was to help these girls run and to keep them in school. They came mostly from very low income families. Some of them had never been in school in their life. Some of them had never held a pencil or they didn't know how to spell their name. And so our goal was to get them and keep them in school and then have them run as kind of to build community. Um, and so doing it alongside them also really helped me see, you know, what I would be comfortable with, what they felt comfortable with. And I would take my cues from them. And now one of our, our second year, we had a a young woman join the team. So 2009 or 10, she joined, her name is Nasra. And then two years ago, she actually started coaching the team. And this year in the fall, she'll be starting university for the first time. And so that's been, it just feels like an incredible opportunity. Um, to be part of that in this culture, to watch someone like her really grow and take running on for herself. And so all that kind of comes back to learning with and from the community, um, which I think is essential for anyone living abroad. Mm. I think at the end of the day, a lot of it is just about respect. And like you said there, you didn't arrive on day one and go running in a new, <laughs> in a new city, which of course could be very dangerous in many right. places, even in Britain or America, you don't go do that. <laughs> Mm-hmm. And also they probably thought you were mad going running in that heat, even in the in the dark, I presume, in the early morning or something, which, yes. is, which is incredible. Um, but also just back on what you initially said about the, the beauty of um, the place, uh, you know, I told you, but for everyone listening, I, I went to school in Malawi, which is a country in Central Africa, so further south and slightly west, I guess, from where you are. Um, uh, and for me, it, it was always a positive experience. I, there was, there's no negative uh, uh, memories for me mm-hmm. from going to school there as you sort of eight, nine, and then we went back uh, when I was in, in early teens. So uh, that that to me is a default position with mm-hmm. Africa. Um, my sister-in-law is Nigerian and I feel like that's where not where I come from but I don't I that's always my default I think which is Mm -hmm. which is nice but I do have to say on that there's two questions that I have around sort of practical things so one is if people are traveling to Africa vaccinations um and malaria are two things to consider so what are are there any requirements for Djibouti 
There are not any specific requirements, no. Um, we do have malaria. It's been very small, but in the recent years, it's increased a little bit. Mm. Dengue fever is more something that we deal with there, but there's no vaccination for dengue. You just have yeah. to suffer through it. <laughs> so we do a lot of preventative stuff with some people use mosquito nets. I hate mosquito nets. And so I just cannot sleep under one. It also the heat is a factor, but mosquito spray, um, you know, making sure your house is screened off, things like that. But definitely other places, malaria is an issue. Um, there is no Ebola where we are. People ask about that sometimes. It's not even close to us. Oh, no, that's a long um, way away. <laughs> like well, it's a bit like, it, again, it's such a big continent and people just yeah. assume Africa is all the same thing, right? But of course right. it's not. <laughs> not at all, not at all. We do recommend that if people are coming to Djibouti, they get a yellow fever vaccination, not because you need one for Djibouti, but if you want to travel to Ethiopia or to Kenya or other places around, it's it's just good to have one before you come. Mm. Yeah. So definitely if people are thinking of traveling, then, you know, check those things out. The other thing is the internet. Um, You know, so often now we are relying on the internet for things or Google Maps and things like that. So what's the internet like? (laughs) Um, It's it's mostly good, but sometimes it can be terrible. I mean, that's just kind of how things are there. Like, I'd say 80% of the time, it's good, um, which to a Westerner is definitely insufficient, but uh, it's sufficient enough. We, we can watch movies. Sometimes you have to let it buffer for a while, you know, before you can get stuff. But there's no Google Maps. There's no addresses. So, I mean, I shouldn't say that. There are, you can definitely Google Map. You can find my house on a map, but it doesn't have an address where I could tell a taxi driver or, you know, a mail delivery person um, how to get to my house. You just have to go by landmarks and direct people or just go get them. Like say, meet me at the corner and I'll come down and pick you up and take you to my house. Um, So things like Google Maps aren't super reliable, but there's also not, I mean, Djibouti, there's, if you're going out of the city, there are, there's one road. (laughs) (laughs) So it's not that hard to find things. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. (laughs) That's fantastic. And of course, you've got the book, Welcome to Djibouti. So, and I've had a look at that and there's lots of practical information, even things like getting a coffee, (laughs) 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 which which, uh, you recommend some places there, don't you? But it sounds like that that is a slight challenge. Yeah, it's getting a lot better, a lot easier. When we first went there, there was very few places that especially a woman could go and just sit and you know, work or be out and about in at a cafe. But now, I mean, there's so many options. And even I need to update the book for the next, for two, 2020, um, because we actually have a shopping mall that has even a movie theater. We have actually a movie theater in Djibouti. So, and there's great cafes around. So it's just growing so rapidly now. Yeah, I mean, the whole of Africa is is changing so fast. It's, it's mm-hmm. really interesting. But let's, I wanted to talk about your book, um, Finding Home, Third Culture Kids in the World. So I'd never heard that phrase before. So explain what are third culture kids and maybe some of the good and bad things about raising a family somewhere so different. Sure. So you had not heard the term before because no. that's interesting. You are a third culture kid. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure how you feel about hearing that, but I'll, actually people would call you an ATCK, an adult third culture kid, because oh. you're not a kid. Um, but yeah, it's a, a TCK or a third culture kid is any person who has spent significant years of their childhood growing up outside their passport country. So I am not a third culture kid, even though I've spent 17 of my adult years living abroad. Those formative early years were all 
for me in the United States. My kids, I have three kids, they're all TCKs. Um, and so it is not like a, a TCK because of that word third. Sometimes people assume it means three countries have been a part of the kid's upbringing, but it doesn't have anything to do with the number of countries or cultures that you've been a part of. It just has to do with the way that um, a kid who's grown up in that kind of environment sort of creates a third culture, a third way of being. Um, they're not quite local. They're not quite foreign. So my kids are kind of American, kind of Jabushin, but they have this other way of, um, of being that forms a third culture or is referred to, I guess, as a third culture. Um, a lot of times kids like that connect really well with other kids who have grown up abroad. And so, for example, both my, I have 19 year old twins. And so last year was their first year of university in the United States. And they both were naturally drawn to international students or other kids who have grown up in other places, not necessarily the same place as them. So my daughter has a good friend who is Australian, but was actually raised in Malawi. They met in Kenya. <laughs> and so they've just connected because they understand this feeling of being sort of between worlds or being part of many worlds. Um, third culture kids, I've, I've done a lot of reading about them and research. I've talked to other third culture kids because I, I want to be able to understand my kids better. I think it's important as a parent to know, just to be able to articulate, I guess, what some of the things are that they're experiencing that are unique. Um, so TCKs, there's some really positive, incredible experiences about it. Like you said, you know, growing up and having such a positive experience in Malawi, um, they, they have a, my kids have this open mindedness to the world. You know, they're open to new experiences. They're brave. They're not afraid to try new things. They speak fluent French because they were raised in a French educational system. Um, they, they really understand and are able to navigate different kinds of cross-cultural relationships or cross-religious relationships. Um, some of their best friends over their years and some of their favorite teachers have been Muslims. And so that's unusual for Americans. You know, when we come back and we see our favorite teacher is this Somali Muslim woman. And some Americans are kind of, you know, nervous about that or uncomfortable. I just haven't experienced that because they haven't had the opportunity to have authentic relationships. Um, with people like that. So, so those things I think are really a gift for third culture kids. Uh, you know, there are definitely challenges. TCKs, there are some statistics that say they have often experienced more major life events by the age of 18 than people who stay in their passport country experience over a lifetime. Mm. And so some, a lot of those experiences or events can be traumatic. There can be, um, war, political instability, you know, refugee kids, those are TCKs, immigrants are TCKs. Um, they might deal with diseases like malaria or Ebola without access to medicine. They, there's natural disasters. You know, my kids, even though they were young, they did experience that evacuation. Um, there's a lot of coming and going of people around a third culture kid. So like diplomat kids or military kids, they move a lot. And so there's a lot of goodbyes and a lot of hellos and that can add and compound a lot of grief but sometimes it's a kind of grief that you can't you know nobody has died and so there's no closure there's no sort of 
burial spot to kind of put things, but maybe they've left behind a country or maybe they've left behind, you know, a pet that was their favorite in a place they lived. And so there's a lot of these sort of ambiguous loss losses that TCKs experience that can be hard to process unless they're able to talk about it, which is why I've tried to learn as much as I can so I can help my kids process. Mm. Yeah, it's really, it's so interesting as you're talking and, you know, thinking about, I mean, I, I had very minor experience, I guess, compared to a lot of the types of people you were talking about there. But I do feel that me and my brother have got a, an attitude, which like you mentioned, not being afraid and, and both of us have just lived in lots of different places around the world and, mm-hmm. you know, would not be like, to me, it's more a practical thing. It's like, okay, so I want to go to Djibouti. What are the things I need to do? There's no there's no actual, oh, I'd be scared of going somewhere new. It's more it just a sort of, okay, so how do I get there? And I, mm-hmm. especially in America, I really found, I think in Europe, we travel a lot more because it's everything so close. But when I was in America, um, people would say to me, oh, wow, you're going to San Francisco or New Orleans. Like, that's amazing. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, but you, you know, you can just get on a plane or a train <laughs> or drive there. <laughs> Yeah, so like people like it's it's interesting to me how people find it such a big thing to go out of um their state or their country and it might not be that expensive either right it's it's not money right. that stops people most of the time yeah i think it's just that nervousness of i don't know what i don't know somebody there i don't know how to get there whereas you know our kids or you and your brother you just figure it out. <laughs> yeah. And you just get on, get on a plane, <laughs> Yeah, <so laughs> which is have, so often all it is, right? <laughs> right. Exactly. I mean, they've just had such an interesting time transitioning to the United States over the last year and, and they are, they'll just do things. They'll go out to by themselves to a cafe or something. And, and their friends think, Oh, that's so brave. <laughs> <laughs> I bet they find it expensive. <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> They're like, oh my goodness, my baguette has got a lot more expensive. <laughs> That's true. And they are not as good here. They just they just can't make it as good. Uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, um, but I would say that one of the, and this is something I'm fascinated with and, and kind of exploring on this show, which is the idea of home. And mm. it's funny because you saying this, I think I'm going to have to read about these TCKs because I struggle with the idea of home very much um, mm-hmm. and having lived in so many places around the world and even back in England living in so many different cities or wherever so searching for home it's it feels like something I should do as if that or finding roots you know everyone thinks that's so important (laughs) so I wondered I mean and you you said you've spent 17 years abroad so what is home for you and how is being an expatriate part of your own self-definition home is one of the major things that third culture kids talk about as something they struggle with so I can identify with what you're saying even though it is a little bit different for me. Um, home is tricky. I can now feel at home in two places. I can feel at home in Djibouti and I can feel at home in Minnesota. And yet I'm at the same time, I'll be missing something about the other place. So I am literally right now talking to you from my parents' basement, <laughs> <laughs> which you think when you're 41, you're not going to be living in your parents' basement anymore. But when we come back, this is where we stay. And so I'm here for just a few weeks. And, um, and it feels like home. You know, I have history here and I have a, an ability to instinctively respond to whether it's something I experienced driving or something that might happen out and about in a grocery store. I just I know the culture innately, like in my bones almost. Um, and so that's a sense of home that just makes a lot of sense to me. But in Djibouti, I feel really at home 
it's such a small place. We've been there so long and as foreigners. And so we, because we stick out, people know us and recognize us. And um, I feel known there in a different way than I feel known here because here I can go about my business and not talk to anybody all day. Mm. <laughs> you know, you can slide your credit card and do everything self checkout or whatever. But in Djibouti, I know the names of the cashiers at the store and I know the guy who pumps my gas and it's very relational. Um, and so that I feel known in a way that feels like home. Um, one thing that one of my kids said one time a few years ago that was really fascinating to me about this. Um, she said, home is the place you miss the most when you're not there. Meaning to her, home was where you weren't instead of where you were, which is sort of the opposite way that someone might think about it who's lived in the, in one place their whole life or one country. Um, and I think it also communicated that sense of, of longing or uh, maybe almost missing. Like there's a little piece that can't quite be everything. You know, my kids will never have Djibouti and Minnesota all at the same time anymore. Um, so there's always a sense of missing when it comes to home. But then as a parent and for myself, just my own health, I think, uh, my husband and I have tried to really create home and it has to be transportable. You know, it has to be something we can take with us, which means it can't be a building or, you know, a actual house. Mm. Um, but it's traditions that we can do no matter where we are, even if we're in transit on Christmas, we can still do a certain tradition or, you know, it's our family. We've, we've become the consistent thing to each other. So my, the kids, you know, their sibling relationship or the five of us together, uh, that has to be home for us and it has to be a safe place, which is what home is. I think, uh, a safe place, a refuge where you can just really be yourself. And so that's what we try to create relationally instead of structurally. Mm, it's interesting. And uh, yeah, and, and it's funny because I think almost that we are meant to struggle with this question becomes mm. an issue as well, because it's like, why should we have to define home? It's almost mm. like, I, I almost feel like I have to ask the question because I feel like I'm meant to know where my home is. And the more I think about it, the more I think it's like you were saying about safe. I feel that it's the place where I can do my work <laughs> mm. without, in a comfortable manner. So, cause whenever you, whenever I travel, wherever I go somewhere new, you have to figure out all this practical stuff, right? Like mm -hmm. even where to buy your food or, you know, the toilet system <laughs> or, you know, money or the internet. And so home can be anywhere where I can have great internet, plug in my laptop, feel safe and get good coffee. <laughs> Those are, that's probably all I need <laughs> and be comfortable temperature wise, which is why, you know, these, these things that make up your daily life almost. So I think, you know, maybe home is where you're happy having a daily life um, mm. that is, that fits who you are almost. Yeah. Yeah. And just a place where you feel like you belong. You, I should yeah. be here. Yeah. Whether it's a foreign country or your place of upbringing. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, so then I guess, and the question is interesting because you're um, an expatriate and you're traveling, your actual physical getting on planes and things going between your two homes, uh, America and Africa. And for me also, my husband's New Zealander and we go back to New Zealand. And to me, that's not travel. It's <laughs> That is going to visit the family. Um, so what is travel for you when you live in such a, what many people would call exotic place? <laughs> yeah uh that's a interesting question because yeah it's the same as what you said it, it feels like 
kind of going home and kind of leaving home at the same time on the same flight. Um, it feels like I travel to see my parents or I travel to get medical care. Mm. <laughs> um, and yet we do experience all these kinds of travel or touristy kind of things as part of our daily life, which actually, I mean, really we don't, we just go to the grocery store and we work at school and I write, it feels like regular life things that I would also do in the U S but it is different. You know, there are the kind of travel aspects to our life. So yeah, I see travel as necessary. Um, also it's a gift, you know, being an expat just it comes with those two things, a lot of the necessary travels and the gifts of it. Um, you had asked about what it feels like to be an expat too. And I just want to go back to that for a second, if it's okay. Mm. Um, there's been some recent discussion on that term. Have, have you heard of this at all? Like no, the term, no, tell us. Whether yeah. it's, okay. So it's, some people feel like it's a term of that's elitist or privileged, um, compared to maybe immigrant or refugee, which definitely have, at least in the U.S., some racial overtones to those terms. Mm. And so I've had some pushback in some of the things that I've written about whether or not I am an expat. And uh, I'm just, I'm a word person, so I go back to dictionary definitions. And uh, as an, an expat is a person who is temporarily residing in a foreign country with no intention to stay forever. Um, and so we are not you know, immigrating to Djibouti, we're not trying to become Djiboutian, we're working there for work. And uh, I feel like that's a really important point to make, um, especially at least in the U.S. with some of the recent, you know, just, it's a important topic to talk about these things. And um, I feel like there can be some misunderstanding of where those things overlap, expats and immigrants and refugees and where they are different. Uh Oh yeah, so, and it's I I kind of find that odd. But again, I think maybe I don't know the people who are questioning this. But from when I, you know, being a kid as well in Malawi, um, I would say that that was a, a very normal term for mm -hmm. people who were there working, as you say. And um, you, yeah, you weren't there as uh, as say a, like a refugee to me is someone who needs some help mm -hmm. and someone who has not necessarily by choice left their country exactly so there's some really big i would say there's some massive differences and that you know if people i mean maybe the word has some ex-colonial overtones that mm -hmm. may be why people have an issue but as you say language develops and i mean you've been you're not on holiday there so right. <laughs> you're not a tourist <laughs> right? and you're on presumably more than a working visa because you're there, you've been there so long. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting that people have an issue with that. Um, but, but, but also I know like a lot of expats who then end up having to leave the country where they've mm -hmm. been staying a long time because of like when we left Malawi, there was some political stuff going on where um, many people were were less welcome. Um, okay. And uh, and I remember a lot of you know my mum's friends talking about the loss of of their country, even mm. though that wasn't their country, you know, by birth. So I think it's a, it is an intricate relationship when you live yeah. in a country so long. Yeah, I definitely see ourselves as guests there. They can revoke our visas, you know, at their discretion. And, and that is up to the Djiboutian government, you know, as long as they're happy with our work and we're happy to stay, it's a great relationship, but it's not our right to demand to stay. You know, it's not my country. I am a guest. And so I feel like that is 
that's important for me to to mm. point out, I guess. Yeah, no, some fascinating topics, but you know, we, you, we could talk for ages. <laughs> but um, apart from your own books, what are some others that you might recommend people read about that area of Africa? This is so interesting because there is not a lot written about Djibouti in English. There's a lot of historical stuff in French, but for Djibouti specific, it's tough to find things. So I focused more on books that are by Somalis or about the Somali region, because mm. um, that's the culture that I know more deeply than the Afar or the Arab part of Djibouti. Um, and also Somalis in particular are very oral. So a lot of their stories and poetry, which is they're really talented um, poets, has been passed down orally. And there's not a ton written down yet, although it's becoming more and more. Um, so one great poetry book is by Warson Shire. And she's a Somali-British poet. She wrote a book called Teaching My Mother to Give Birth. Um, and some of her poems are actually um, part of Beyonce's 2016, I believe it was, her special called Lemonade. Mm. Um, she used some of Orson Shiri's poetry. And there's one in particular that just really resonates, again, with what's happening in the United States right now with refugees. It's called Home. And I'm just going to read the first two lines of it. No one leaves home unless home is the mouth of a shark. You only run for the border when you see the whole city running as well. And then the poem just goes on to talk about how parents just don't just put their kids on boats for fun, basically. Like there mm. is something happening that, you know, causes that to happen. So she has a really powerful voice, I think, with her poetry. That's um, Teaching My Mother to Give Birth by Warson Shiri. And then... Another book that's just really beautiful is called Keeping Hope Alive by Hawa Abdi. One woman, 90,000 lives saved. Hawa was, I, don't, I can't remember when, but she was nominated at least for the Nobel Peace Prize. And she and her daughters during some of the most violent years in Somalia, sheltered, educated, fed thousands of Somalis. And so it's just a story of, of her standing up to warlords and caring for her people. And um, it's really inspirational. Mm, fantastic. And then there's one I just love called Somali Sideways by Mohammed Mahmoud. And this, it's a, it's got photos. And then, so it started as an Instagram series, Instagram account where Somalis all over the world in the diaspora would have a picture of themselves facing sideways to kind of show um, that there's multiple perspectives and changing perspectives about Somalis around the world. And then they would write an Instagram post. And so uh, Muhammad basically, you know, gathered all those up and produced this really beautiful book um, that just shows the diversity and of what Somalis are doing and how they're engaging in the world and just who they are. Mm. Oh, that's fantastic. Um, yeah, <laughs> I'm like, oh, tell me more. <laughs> and, and you're right. I mean, it's difficult because I, I, I had a look. I was like, oh, there must be. Uh, it's actually, it was actually very hard to find out information about Djibouti. As you say, it's yeah. a very small country. Um, but I, I think it's this has been so fascinating to learn more about um, the culture and, uh, and your perspective. So thank you so much. <laughs> Sure. Uh, so where can people, I mean, you're a writer, so you have written lots of things and you have a newsletter. Um, so where can people find you and everything you do online? DjiboutiJones.com is my website. And uh, I, I do think it's one of the 
easiest places anyway to find English stuff about Djibouti. And yeah, on there you'll find a subscription to my newsletter, which always includes an essay and news stories from the Horn of Africa. Um, and that's just the best way to go. You can find all the links to follow me there. So DjiboutiJones.com. Fantastic. Well, thanks so much for your time, Rachel. That was great. Thanks. That's been great. Thanks for joining me today on the Books and Travel podcast. I hope you found a moment of escape. You can find the episode show notes at booksandtravel.page. And if you enjoy thrillers set in international locations, download one of my books for free at jfpen.com forward slash free. Happy travels until next time.